0: Our scripture reading for this morning is 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with, the, with God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Yeah, you may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's, um, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you are speaking to us this morning. If only we have eyes to see And ears to hear. So we need those. Would you by your Holy Spirit give us what we need this morning, uh, not only for our sake, not not only for the sake of our neighbor, uh, but that we might glorify you in this corner of the city. We love you, Lord. Help us to hear what you're speaking to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the medieval world, uh, there was work, W-O-R-K, capitalized work, and then there was, like, work. There was work. This was the work done by the priests and the nuns and, and the monks. This work was called the, the spiritual estate. And this was the work God counted worthy of his service. And there was, for everyone else, well, just work. This work, this other lowercase work, was of a different kind. It was lesser, less important, certainly less spiritual, and it was to be seen as something entirely different than the spiritual estate of the monks and priests and nuns. And it's amazing how, at least in Christian circles, how little has changed over all these years. Like Catherine Alsdorf was a a leading executive in the States when she became a Christian. And as soon as she became a Christian, she she worried. She was was anxious. Why? She was worried that since her work in business was not of the spiritual estate, well, she would need to find a full-time job in ministry. What made matters worse is that Catherine Alsdorf's brothers had also just converted to Christianity, and they had both gone overseas to serve in missions. Clearly, that's what you do. Christ said, to you, How do you view your work? You know, that thing you do when you're not here. How do you view your work? Is it work or is it just work? What I want to propose today is that provided your work is not against the commands of God, If you have been purchased by Christ's blood, and he now owns you, continuing the thought in 1 Corinthians, if you have been purchased by Christ's blood, and he now owns you, you in any and all circumstances are able to serve Christ. That's the big idea this morning. You in any and all circumstances are able to serve Christ. There is no such thing as just work or just a job for the Christian. All Christians, in the words of the long-dead reformer Martin Luther, now participate in the spiritual estate. Around 500 years ago, Luther wrote that any distinction in work, any spiritual work and then other work, any distinction in work is indeed, he writes, a piece of deceit and hypocrisy. Yet no one needs uh, need be intimidated by it. And that for this reason, why? What, what's, your, what's your chapter and verse, Luther? All Christians are truly of the spiritual estate. And there is no difference among them except that of office. We are all, he says, consecrated priests by baptism, as St. Peter says. You are a royal priesthood and a priestly realm. He says, Revelation says, thou hast made us to be kings and priests by thy blood. In fact, if it is true that you can serve Christ in any and all circumstances, this extels, ex- extends well beyond our jobs. You'll notice this week, hopefully you notice this week, that we just skipped a portion of Scripture to get to verse 17. Liv's nodding her head. She's like, what's going on here? I this is a Bible-preaching church. We, we skipped a whole bunch of Scripture to, to get to verse 17, and, and that's for a reason. It's for a reason. Tr- trust me. The the scripture that we skipped has to do with marriage and singleness and divorce. And we, we skipped it because in the coming weeks, what we want to do is consider each of these things in turn. Marriage, singleness, and divorce. And we want you to see, based off this principle in verses 17 to 24, that you can serve Christ whether you're married, you're single, or divorced. You can serve Christ in any and all circumstances. But before we get to the specifics, before we get to the case studies, as it were, we have to consider the whole. We must ask, what does it take to believe, truly believe, that we can serve Christ exactly where you are today? And how do we do it? We're going to look at three things this morning. First, Christ's call. Second, our work. And then third, abiding with God. So Christ's call our work abiding with God. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7. If you don't have one, we have Bibles at the back. If you don't have one at all, take it, keep it. It's our gift to you. First, Christ's call. Now, every once in a while, I don't know if this is just the plight of the urban male, uh, but every once in a while, I I try to feel more manly than I actually am because I'm not. I don't do manly things on a daily basis I drive Evos, and I type on a computer, and then I drive home, and then I don't do manly things. I don't hunt or fish or, you know, build a hut or a home. I, I just don't do manly things. What else do men do? I, I don't do those things. But I do watch Meat Eater on Netflix. And I do that to, to fill that void in my heart to be manly, just to pretend I'm someone else. And one of the things I've learned from Meat Eater is I think I can hunt now because I've watched Meat Eater. But, but, but the other thing I've learned from this show, it's about hunting, by the way, Uh, is that there are different calls for different animals. And you're all like, "Mm mm-hmm, we knew that. I'm like, I didn't know that. I grew up north of Toronto, I, I now live here. I didn't know that. There are different calls for different animals. See, the language of call, did you notice that, is all over our text this morning. But in the New Testament, there are three different kinds of calls, as it were. Three different kinds of calls that we should hear differently when the author brings them up. And so, for example, the, the first call in the New Testament is this sort of general calling from God. We call it a, a general calling. This first call is the invitation for all people everywhere to turn from their sin and trust in Christ. And so, for example, we read, Jesus says in Matthew twenty two fourteen. For many are called, he says, but few are chosen. In other words, though not everyone will respond to the king's invitation, everyone has been invited to the banquet. We've all been invited. In this sense, everyone everywhere has been called. But this isn't the call that our text is talking about this morning, and so we go on to the next call. The second call we might be be more familiar with. We express this call like this. I don't know what my calling is in this life. Or if you're a Christian, I don't know what God is calling me to do. This second call is calling as vocation, as vocation. So for example, I would tell you that about 12 years ago, I felt a call to pastoral ministry. You would tell me that you felt a call to practice law. This is calling as vocation. And unlike the first call, this call actually does show up in our text. Look at your Bibles. Look at verse 20. There Paul writes, and we read already, Lydia read for us, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. This this word we read here, condition, could be translated as calling. So each one should remain in the calling in which he was called. And it refers more generally to someone's status or position in life. So yes, job, but also if you're a parent. If you're in a certain housing situation. Wherever you find yourself, that's your calling, your your status, your position. Where where you fit on, on the hierarchy of society, that's your calling. What we could refer to today sometimes as our jobs. And Paul uses this call actually earlier in 1 Corinthians 26, when we read this. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. Paul there is making the point, some of you were rich, some of you were poor, some of you were important people, some of you were not important people. Whatever the case, Jesus saved you all. That's the idea of calling as a vocation. Again, referring to someone's circumstance, their position, or status when they come to Christ. But this second call, I hate to disappoint you, is also not the primary call in our text. So we go to the third call. The third call in the New Testament. This is the call, as it were, that Paul is sounding in our text. It's not a general call or a call to vocation. It is what we could call an effective call. What do I mean by that? I wonder if you can, once more, go back with me all the way to the beginning of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9, Paul tells the church that they have all heard this call. Do you remember how we began? We read in verse 9, God, who is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, Paul says, Corinth... Christ City, you were dead in your sin. You were staring at the bottom of another empty bottle, another endless credit card bill, another performance appraisal, and you felt empty. And then you heard it. And then you heard it. For some of you, it was audible. Uh, For most of us, it was not. But for all, it was the same. It was this call. It was the voice of the Spirit calling you to turn from your sin and to throw yourself onto Jesus. See, to be a servant of Christ is not actually a matter of searching or seeking. But as one scholar put it, Doug Moo, he says, to be a Christian is simply a matter of God's calling. See, this call, we read in our text this morning, it knows no racial or ethnic boundaries. Did you notice? In our text, Paul asks, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? And so Jews have been called, Paul says. Next he says, was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? And so Gentiles have been called. This call further does not privilege the wealthy or the powerful over the weak and the poor. In our text, we learn that Christ calls both the what? The bondservants and the free. Both of them out of their sin and to himself. No, the, the effective call, the call in our text this morning, the effective call is an irresistible call to Christ as king for all kinds of people. In our text, this is the call that Paul wants to emphasize. Eight times, eight times he says it. You've been called, call, 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 call. I wonder, when we think about the three callings of the New Testament, if we often get it backwards. See, given uh, the people in this church, our ages and stages, I'm assuming that many of us are asking every week this question. Am I doing what God has called me to do? Who here asks this this week? <laughs> yeah, that's just ones who are brave enough. We all ask it this week. Am I doing what God has called me to do? Now, questions around vocation, hear me, are not bad or wrong. They are to be pursued and, and prayed through. I'm with you. In fact, we're going to ask some of those questions in just a moment. But, but the calling that Paul emphasizes, and I think the calling the New Testament emphasizes, the one that's given priority, has nothing to do with vocation, but with salvation. Has nothing to do with what you do, but first, most gloriously, what has been done for you, Christ city. And when we forget this, this first, this prioritized calling, this effective call, we get all sorts of anxious and worried and fret and about our vocational call. Isn't that true? When we forget the effective call, we get all sort of anxious about our vocational call. And we begin to think, at least maybe this is just me, we begin to think that if I do well enough at my vocation, if I do the right thing in my position in life, then we can earn this call to salvation. But when we remember, as Paul reminds us, that we have been called by faith through grace, our attitude towards our vocation, our status, our our position in life, it, it, it changes. Our vocation, whether it's as a mom or a dad or as a postal worker, It no longer bears the weight of needing to justify us. I'll say it again. Our vocation no longer bears the weight of needing to justify us because our justification has already been accomplished in our call. Uh, The author Tim Keller, in his really good book on faith and work, Every Good Endeavor, he writes this, and it's such good news. He says, The gospel frees us from the relentless pressure Of having to prove ourselves and secure our identity through work, for we are already proven and secure. It also, he says, frees us from a condescending attitude towards less sophisticated labor and from envy over more exalted work. All work now becomes a way to love the God who saved us freely, and by extension, a way to love our neighbor. It's good news. See, without the gospel as our foundation, work either becomes a tireless proving ground, a source of pride and superiority over others, or this crushing place of despair. Only the gospel gives us a stable foundation for our work. We have to move now from Christ's call to our work or our position, our status. Now, now, the question I was asking this morning as I was reading this text, not this morning, this week, I prepared ahead of time, I promise you. The, the question I was asking this morning, as a, again, this week, as I was reading this text, what, was what is the situation in Corinth that Paul feels like he needs to say this? Like, what is happening that Paul feels like he needs to write this to the church in that time? And in answering this question, I, I think it's key here to look at the two examples that Paul uses. And the first example, it will sound strange to us, has to do with, with circumcision. Let's read it in verse 18 to 20. He says, Was anyone at the time of his call, remember that effective call, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither, he writes, circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. What's going on here? Let's begin with the first situation. There are some in Corinth who are tempted, Paul says, to remove the marks of of circumcision. And maybe this confuses you. (laughs) After all, you know we're all adults. You know what circumcision entails, the removal of the foreskin from the penis. And so you're wondering, how does one go about reversing that? Well, I'm glad that you asked. The the Greek term that Paul is using here is this first century um, sort of reference to a surgical procedure uh, called epispasm. And you're like, this sounds like what it is, (laughs) is—epispasm. An epispasm in the first century world was where Jews, who uh, wanted to kind of fit in into society as it were, they would take an iron instrument uh, to help them look as if they were not circumcised. So iron instrument, suturing, that's all explained about the actual procedure itself. And it sounds like insane. And if you're a man right now, you're sort of like huddled over it sounds like painful and terrible, and you're wondering, you should be wondering, why would anyone ever want to do this? Let me explain. Two of the primary arenas, as it were, where businesses were, for, uh, were, were sort of conducted and, and political alliances were forged uh, were the gymnasium gymnasium, and the other one uh, was the, the bathhouse. In the gymnasium, you, you would wrestle, and you'd work out, sort of like the gym today, and, and the bathhouse was like the spa afterwards, right? In both of these places, upward mobility could be achieved. If you wanted to get ahead, you'd go to the gymnasium, you'd meet your contact at the bathhouse, and there you'd do business. You, you'd progress in society. Sort of like today, if you know the, the Vancouver Terminal City Club downtown, you go there, have a game of squash, right? Have some scotch afterwards, some the rich oak mahogany stuff. Sort of like the ancient equivalent to that, except one one important difference. The the gymnasium and the bathhouse, those were, uh, you participated in those naked. You you weren't clothed. You wear clothes, the Vancouver Terminal City Club. And so, if you're a Jew in that instance, in this ancient world, you'd be immediately recognized. Immediately recognized. Immediately outed for what you are. And and this could hurt you in the political and in the business sphere, right? People who didn't want to deal with Jews. People who were prejudiced towards them. See, here's a temptation for the Corinthian Jew who's now come to believe in Jesus. And tell me if you can relate to this temptation. You're like, Jake, how does this have to do with anything? I'm getting there. Tell me if you can relate to this temptation. I might have a better chance at closing this deal or building this relationship, or just generally being accepted by my culture if I keep my religious convictions to myself, if I keep my faith to me. See, we might not be willing to undergo epispasm to cover up our faith, but we will do just about everything else. We'll take off our wedding ring at the business dinner just in the off chance the deal might be helped if the client thinks I'm flirting with them. We'll laugh at the the coarse and depraved talk on the job site so that we won't get ridiculed or excluded from after-work beers. We'll even say and sign something contrary to our faith in order to keep our job and avoid an HR nightmare. What kind of person would undergo epispasm? People like us. People like us. I want to make the point here that there's a difference between being wise in our work and hiding at our work. Each of us this morning needs to discern, according to God's word and by God's spirit, what it means to be wise where he has us, where we work. But hiding our faith is never wise. Why? Jesus said this, but whoever denies me before men I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. See, trusting that I have everything I need in Jesus, that he forever has me, this gospel frees me from selling my soul to win the bid. But what about the person who is uncircumcised and tempted to be circumcised? What's going on there? Paul writes, we read in verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. See, if the temptation to undergo epispasm is rooted in a fear of man, then the temptation for the Christian to undergo circumcision is rooted in a futile attempt to please God. On one hand, an attempt to please man. On the other hand, a futile attempt to please God. Paul says, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. If it is true, as Luther said, that we are all now consecrated priests by baptism, then when you show up for work tomorrow, you arrive there, this this is crazy, as an accountant priest. And when you show up at school tomorrow, you show up there as a school teacher priest. And when you go to the office on Tuesday, you get there as a salesperson priest. And as the priesthood of all believers, you go each day, just like me, tasked with priestly duties. The first, may I suggest, is to do your job well to be very, very good at your job. If you've reduced being a Christian at your job to just sharing the gospel, that's a good thing, don't mishear me, but you forgot about your work altogether so that you're lazy or you're terrible at it, but you're sharing the gospel, you're undermining your message at the very same time. Be very good at your job. Work diligently, work excellently, work with with beauty and, and, and grace. You go as a priest to read and proclaim the scripture so that the lost may be saved. You go as a priest to pray and intercede for those coworkers who don't know Jesus. You go as a priest to image for all a foretaste of the kingdom to come filled with the Holy Spirit. And so hear me, Christ City, you don't have to go overseas. They don't have to go to Africa or Asia. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to work for a nonprofit. You don't have to do all these things to please God. You can please God in your work today. See, the gospel says that if you have been justified apart from your works, then you're free to serve Christ in whatever calling you find yourself in. In fact, Paul will say, just coming up, you must serve Christ wherever you are. You must be faithful where he has you. Look at verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can, gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. We have to, we have to first pause here for a second, because there's just some, some obstacles we have at this point. Look at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. And then verse 20, we just read it. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So these verses, at certain points in history, I'm thinking specifically here of black slavery in the American South in the 17th and 18th century, these verses have been used by slave owners to justify keeping their slaves as slaves. So the slave owner reads to his slaves, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Closed Bible, there you go want to pause. That was their condition, so they argued, and so that is where they should remain. I I hope you see here that Paul's concern in these verses is not to prop up or legitimize human slavery. No, Paul's concern in the Corinthian church is that they would know that the gospel frees you to serve Christ in any circumstance. He's not legitimizing something. He's saying you are free to serve Christ in any circumstance. That's the point he's making. So he says, were you bondservants when called? Or were you freed when called? It doesn't actually matter. Why? Remember, Paul says, all of us, free and slave, circumcised and uncircumcised, we've all been bought by a new master, a new Lord. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant, verse 22, is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a bondservant of Christ. Listen, Paul says. There is a new reality that is greater, indeed, must be greater than your station in life. A new reality that ought to inform your work. He says the gospel call has freed you, the gospel call has justified you. And so now Paul says stop wasting your time. Stop wasting your time. I want us to see how another translation the NRSV translates verse 21 cuz I think it's helpful. We read this. Even if you can gain your freedom, then listen, make use of your present condition now more than ever. We couldn't we could translate it make make positive use of the present. See maybe the Corinthians were sitting and and twiddling their thumbs Waiting for their circumstances to change. Again, I can't relate to that. That's not like me. Maybe they were thinking, if I was just to get rich, then I could make a difference. Then I could really make an impact. Or when I graduate, after I get these degrees, have these letters, then I can really serve Christ. Or if I just get that promotion, mm, then my contribution for the kingdom will be meaningful. This is me and this is you. This is us. Is it not us? Paul says, start serving Christ now. Make positive use of the present. So this morning, if you're a stay-at-home parent, this means that you are commanded to serve Christ now in the diapers and the sticky floors and all that other garbage. And you're not forced to wait to get back to work before you can make a difference. Moms, dads, you've got work to do today. It's not less. It's not less meaningful. There's not the spiritual estate out there. Moms, dads, you've got work to do today. If you're a student, you're a student, God's assignment to you is not the job you get in the future. I want to say that again. God's assignment to you is not the job you get in the future. His assignment to you, what he is calling you to, is exactly where you are. So reject the lie, student, that this is only a season of learning, only a season of receiving, and not for serving and giving. There are thousands of people on your campus who are hungry for Christ. Students, you've got work to do. And maybe, maybe you give lip service to the sovereignty of God. But surely, surely he could not have put you in this job that you're currently in. Jake, you don't know about the job I'm currently in. You don't know about the people I work with. They are terrible. have a terrible boss. It's a terrible situation. Surely God has something else for me. Surely the best thing for me to do is just put my head down and get through the day and try hard not to grumble. Paul says, no. Make positive use of the present. Provided you can do your job without breaking the commandments of God, God has put you in your job for a reason. And if you're like, Jake, again, you don't know my job. Remember, he's talking to slaves here. And I want to say to you, you don't know their job. You don't know their world. And if Paul can say that to slaves in the first century, I think he can say it to you. Daydreamers, you've got work to do. Whether you're a mom or a dad, a student or a daydreamer, see, here's the lie that we're tempted to believe. And as always, C.S. Lewis encaptures it uh, perfectly in his screw tape letters. If you don't know, the Screwtape letters are are a series of of letters from a senior demon to a younger demon. And listen to the advice the the, the senior demon gives to the younger demon. Uncle Screwtape, he writes this. He says, we want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end. Never honest, nor kind, nor happy now, but always using as mere fuel... Wherewith to heap the altar of the future every real gift which is offered them in the present. The, the lie is that happiness and, and, and true belonging and, and true self fulfillment is, is just around the corner, it is just in that change of relationship, it is just in that change of job, it is just in that change of circumstance, just beyond our grasp. So before we move to our last point, Carsidia, I wanted to sit here. I want to allow the Spirit to work. And I want to ask you, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Christ called you out of your sin and put you in that seat in that lecture hall for a reason. What are you waiting for? Christ called you to serve him and put you in that boardroom with those people, for a reason. Christ called you out of your sin to serve him and to serve others and put you in that home with that spouse, with those children, for a reason. Christ said, you have been called by Christ to serve Christ in any and all circumstances. The best part is, And this is the best part. It really is. We get to serve Christ with Christ. Look at point three. Abiding with God. Look at verse 24 in our text. Our text ends this morning. And so, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there, whatever condition, let him remain with God. See, here's the picture we have. God calls you to himself. And that call gives us a foundation, empowers us to do meaningful and fulfilling work as his servants. And, and, and then what? We report back to God, right? Stands over here. We're over here. are you know, working away. This is how we work now, like this. Right? Working over here. And then maybe we think we'll die and God will ask us for a quick report. Like, like what have you been up to? Like, like what happened over here? Like, t- tell me. Right? And then he'll give us a grade on that? Is that how it works? Here's how I want us to end. Last week, Paul said this. In verse 17. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Christ city, you have been united with Christ. Which means that when you go to work, and when you walk your neighborhood, and when you cook dinner, and when you write a sermon... You are not alone. You're not by yourself. It's not you and you alone doing this work. And it means so much. It means that when you're doing that job that is mocked or seen as somehow lesser, Christ dignifies your work with his very presence. Like Christ is with you as you're doing that uncomfortable and hard and and sometimes monotonous work, he dignifies your work with his very presence. It means that in a hostile workplace, which I know many of you are walking in, Christ is standing beside you. He's not over here waiting for a report, or how did you do, were, were you faithful? No, he's standing with you at your work. He's with you. It means that that when you're making decisions that will dramatically change people's lives and and their families' lives, Christ is giving you strength. Christ is giving you his wisdom. Christ is reminding you that he loves you, indeed is with you as you make those decisions. How? How can we serve Christ in any and all circumstances only with Christ? only by abiding with God. See, that word in verse 24, uh, remain, that word remain in our text this morning is the same word, the same word, uh, that John uses in John 15, John the Gospel writer, for abide. So when we go to work, and when we we do whatever we're called to do, Jesus says in, in all of this stuff, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. John writes for us, and Jesus says, for apart from me you can do nothing. I want to leave us this morning with a very practical exercise that I took from a book called Union with Christ by a pastor named Rankin Wilborn. And, and he talks in this book, and maybe you remember these things, about those WWJD bracelets. I had one, right, when I was else for the Lord. If you want to put your hand up now and make me feel better about having one. Priscilla, I see you. I see, I see that hand in the back. I was a, little bit, a bit shy, I see you. Do you remember those WWJD bracelets, right? What would Jesus do? We, we look down, okay, what would Jesus do in the situation? Okay, I'll, I'll go and I'll, I'll do it, and that's good. there's some truth in WWJD, right? Jesus is both our Savior and our example. But in WWJD, our union with Christ is largely ignored or, or at least minimized. Jesus, in what would Jesus do, is always external from you. And so we pray prayers like this. What should I do? What should I do? Man, what should I do? What does this mean for me? But what if, Woborn writes, what if Christ became your conversation partner in prayer? And we began to pray like this, Jesus, what should we do today? Now, the past week, my wife, having just encountered this lesson, was transformed by this very reality of praying, Jesus, what should we do Today. Jesus, what are you trying to teach me? Jesus, how would you lead me in this conversation? How would you speak through me? And suddenly we find that Jesus is with us beyond Sunday morning. We find we're not alone. Suddenly, secure in our gospel call, we are free to serve Christ and to serve others. Woolburn concludes a section like this. That's the freedom of the gospel you have through your union with Christ. Listen, Christ city. There is nothing left to be because you are already his. I'll say that again. There is nothing left to be because you are already his. Christ city, there is nothing left to be. Hiding your faith to please man? There is nothing left to be thinking that if you really want to be used by God, used by Christ, you'd go overseas, Christ City, there is nothing left to be. Believing that true happiness is just a promotion, a graduation, a house upgrade away, Christ City, there is nothing left to be. Oh, that we would know that. You are already his, and he, miracle upon miracles, is ours. Let's pray. So, Father, we come this morning and we receive. We just receive, Lord. We receive what you say about us in the gospel. We repent of the times when we thought of our work, our labor, as a way in which we can be justified before you or justify our existence in your sight. We ask so that you would forgive us, that we would work from a place of already being justified, that we would glorify you in our bodies, as Paul has already said. Lord, for those of us on the endless treadmill of, of just one thing away from being happy, one, one circumstance away from, from having arrived, Lord, would you free us from that death? would we know right now that there is nothing left for us to be. That the title that we bear now as sons and daughters of the King, that that will be the title in glory. It will not be something beyond that or more than that. We have that status now. So impress upon us by your spirit these truths, O Lord. May we be faithful as we leave this place. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christitychurch.ca.